Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 356. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. This week's guest is Sean DeMartel. Sean realized not long ago that the traditional path to retirement and saving his 401k until he was, what, 65 years old was not the way he wanted to build wealth. It became clear to him that multifamily real estate had the power to build wealth and achieve financial freedom. In 2019, while working his full-time W-2 job as an air traffic controller, he partnered with two colleagues to buy their very first multifamily acquisition, a 32-unit in Indianapolis. We're going to get into that deal today. So today, I'm excited to bring on the show, Sean. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jacob. I appreciate it, man. Let's do this. Let's see if we can help some people. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure we will. Well, Sean, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, your background, all that good stuff. All right. I'm going to try to give you guys the shorter version here. But so my W-2 job that you alluded to is an air traffic controller. So my day job here, I actually, I live in San Diego, California, but I control the approaches and departures for all the Orange County airports. So I sequence the aircraft to the airport and the same thing whenever they leave. And I do it all with a radar scope. It's a great job. It's a high paying wage job. But once I started working that job and making good money, I started saving money. And, you know, I know we're going to get into the 401k stuff. I was maxing out my 401k for a while. But, you know, with this whole W2 job, I have to work weekends. My days off are Tuesday, Wednesday. So I miss out on a lot of things and I work a lot of overtime. Typically six days a week is what I'll work. So as I'm working, you know, constantly, there was this thought that kept turning around in my brain that I wanted to. I didn't want to do that until I was, you know, in my 60s. That that wasn't a path that made sense to me. So, long story short, I ended up running into a buddy who was a real estate, really into real estate, real estate agent, and he told me about bigger pockets, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners oh, yeah. and pretty much everybody that's in real estate obviously knows. And that really started this whole going down the rabbit hole of me reading every book that I can get my hands on, listening to every podcast, and then all of a sudden other guests who have podcasts, I've listened to their podcasts. And I was just basically graduated from podcast university and then a lot of self-education with books and whatnot. So I knew I wanted to get into real estate and that that can expedite my path to financial freedom. So I partnered with two guys that I work with in air traffic control. And we realized through our reading, through our studying, that multifamily real estate will get us to where we wanted to go much, much, much quicker than single family. And so we decided to partner up and use all of our resources to go ahead and jump right in. And we got a 32 unit that you related to in Indianapolis just at the end of 2019. And that was our very first deal. That's awesome. So I guess kind of backing up here, you know, you're earning a good salary, you've got a good day job. What's kind of motivated you to, you know, go outside that box and, you know, step into the world of real estate? It's just, you know, I would see the guys at my work that were, you know, still working six days a week sometimes. And 
you know, they were nearing retirement and I would look at those guys and, you know, not to be an ageist or anything like that, but I kept thinking to myself like, man, I really don't want to still be doing this when I'm, you know, getting into my sixties. And then the other thing that really got me thinking about it was just that, you know, working at W2, I love to travel. I love to do a couple of things. I love to travel and just spend, you know, weeks in Europe or, you know, wherever yeah. uh, exploring and things like that. I love it. I like to go backpacking. So I'll, I'll go backpacking for like five days at a time in Sequoia National Park, just like literally in the wilderness. And I love it. But the thing is, is with my work, I have to bid for vacation days, right? Based off of seniority. And we have to do it a year in advance. So I literally just a couple of weeks ago, we bid our vacation for all of 2021. It's set in stone. If you want vacation on the spot, it's virtually impossible. So I'm living this life where I'll get, you know, 20 something days of vacation a year that I have to allot a year in advance and try and plan for that. And then anything outside that I can't really do. So it's, I don't get to do as much of the things that I love to do because of the W2 job. So what got me thinking about all this is that I wanted freedom. I wanted financial freedom. I wanted to be able to leave and go on a vacation whenever I wanted to and not have to go clock in and be at the whim of my employer. That's really the main driving factor. Yeah, sure. I totally resonate and understand. I'm sure so many of the audience members do as well, Sean. Just having that lifestyle freedom, being able to do the things when you want, with who you want, how you want, where you want. And right. I don't know about you, but I don't have my life planned out a year in advance in terms of vacation. It's hard so. to do that. Yeah. And then if you want to ever like do like a vacation with a friend, it's like, hey, man, I so how does next September a full year out from now sound for going on the, the backpack trip? They're like, dude, I don't know. I can't plan that far ahead. <laughs> for sure. Well, tell us about your kind of array into the real estate world. How'd you come across that 32 unit deal across the country? You're in San Diego. That deal is in Indianapolis. Why there? How there? Kind of walk through the details of that deal. Yeah, let's walk through that. So in San Diego, California, as anybody could probably guess, this is one of the most expensive markets in the country, if not you know, the most expensive market. Southern California is absolutely ridiculous. To put it into perspective for your listeners that might be in the Midwest or something, imagine getting a two-bedroom house that's maybe 900 square feet here in San Diego. That'll cost you $650,000 maybe, depending on what neighborhood you're in. So that's just talking about single-family homes. If you want to get into multifamily, it just gets way more expensive and unachievable. So Looking at that and the fact that you can't cash flow in Southern California, there's a huge barrier to entry because you need way more money to get into multifamily here. That was why we looked outside of California. We ended up basically looking across the country, starting just looking at the whole map and saying, okay, let's take out all of the coastal markets because the coastal markets are all, are all going to be more expensive. Right. Then we started looking at like landlord-friendly states, but also states that have steady to increasing populations. We don't want to go somewhere that's just dead, that doesn't have a lot of growth. We want places with job growth, population growth, and employment growth, right? Um, job growth. So we started looking at that. Then we would, we really liked the Midwest because it met a lot of those factors. But in addition to that, the cap rates were a little higher. It was cheaper to get in and get started. So we started to hone in on this sort of triangle or square of Indianapolis, Lexington, Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, and Cincinnati. And yeah, okay. Yeah, we looked there because it met all of those metrics. But you know, a city like Indianapolis, if you look, you could look at all kinds of different forecasts and you'll see Indianapolis at, at in the top 25 or in the top 10 for a lot of multifamily outlook forecasts. Right. So it's still up there. I mean, you're not going to get the explosiveness of that you're going to see in Texas, for example. 
But Texas is also going to be a lot higher barrier to entry. So we like that about it. And we started reaching out to lots of brokers. We would basically make a list. We'd go on like LoopNet because LoopNet, you can go on there and then make a list of brokers. They'll just, we're not buying properties off of LoopNet, but you can go on there, just make a huge list of brokers that are in that city. You could also go to like Marcus and Millichap's website, et cetera, get all the emails and phone numbers for brokers. And then we just started pinging brokers. We would call them, tell them our search criteria, start to get to know them, fly out there. My partner, Rich, is responsible for flying out there and networking with brokers and just spending a lot of time grinding on the phone and on the emails with them and constantly keeping up with them. Every couple of weeks, we'd ping them, hey, you got anything coming your way that you know sort of fits with our criteria? And then eventually, you know, we kept looking through a lot, a lot of deals that weren't great deals. But eventually, this deal in Indianapolis, it's actually in Greenwood, which is 15 minutes south of Indianapolis. That deal came along. And as soon as we saw it, we knew that was the deal we wanted to get and start with. So I want to get into your kind of investment criteria, but before we jump into that, how do three air traffic controllers kind of break into that world of multifamily real estate through broker relationships? Because that first phone call is, hi, you know, I'm Sean, I'm an air traffic controller across the country. And they're like, okay, who's this guy, right? Yeah. So that's a great point. And that is one of the really difficulties for anyone getting started because so much in this business is based off of your experience. Whether you go to a lender, you go to a lender and say, I want to borrow a couple million bucks for an apartment property. The first thing they're going to say is, what is your experience? They want it. That's heavily considered. Same thing with brokers. Basically across the board, the first question is, what is your experience? So the way we overcame that is by basically building a team ahead of time and showing that we can close. All the broker cares about is that you can actually close on this deal. Right. So we basically preempted that by saying, look, first of all, we've got a team. Here's our property manager that we're going to use. Okay. Here is our mortgage broker. And we would CC him on the email. He's already vetted us. He's got lenders lined up ready to lend to us. And we would even say, if you'd like, we could show proof of funds. We have cash ready to close. So we can prove to you that we've got the money. So we would just preempt it with all of that, just so we could already answer his question, who are these guys and can they close? And so we would say, yes, we can close. Here's how much money we have. And here's our mortgage broker who's lined up, ready to go with these lenders. And the mortgage broker would even chime in and be like, yeah, hey, my name is Dave. You know, these guys are ready to rock. I've got XX and X lenders who are ready to lend to them. And that worked. Yeah, that's awesome. Just kind of overcoming those objectives right off, you know, the bat, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got to basically start with that because like I said, especially when you're a newbie, like they don't care much other than like you can close on the deal and you're not going to be difficult to work with. Now, when you're talking about long distance real estate investing across the country, you know, if you're not investing in your home market, that opens up the question of, okay, where can I invest in it? You talked about some of those driving metrics that you look for in a market. How about the property type and how'd you settle on that? And what kind of properties were you focusing on? Good. So when it came to the property itself, our criteria was that we wanted like 1960s vintage or newer. And I say 1960s because like once you start getting into even older than that, 1930s, 1940s, something like that, then you're just going to have like even more problems with potential like with the pipes, like galvanized piping, things like that. So I remember it was 1960s vintage or newer. And we really had a price criteria because we could only afford so much. So we were basically, I think we said 1.4 million or less in purchase price. We wanted it to be a value-add deal. And kind of I think that was basically what we left it at as far as telling the broker because we wanted him to send us all the deals that kind of met that basic criteria. We did say we wanted pitched roofs as well. I remember that because flat roofs are kind of a pain in the buns. And But the other criteria that we didn't tell the broker was really neighborhood-specific because we didn't want the broker to have to go through this stuff. But we have a couple of criteria. For example, we have uh, 
median household income criteria. We set that at $40,000. So we use Neighborhood Scout personally. Yeah. We, we pump in an address and we'll get all the demographic information, crime information, school information. So we want to see uh, median household income north of 40K. We want to see low crime and we want to see good schools as well. Those are like the three main drivers outside of the actual property itself. Elaborate on that median household income and why that's an important metric for you guys. Yeah. So the reason why we set that is because once you start getting below that number we found, you're going to just run into uh, properties that have a lot more you know, Section 8 housing. A lot more crime is just going to kind of be tied into that as well. People tend to tear up the property more if their household income is that low. And there's just generally a lot more problems. When we were looking at neighborhoods that would have you know, a median household income lower than that, if we got a property sent to us, you could, even if we, I remember having our you know, potential property manager go drive by the property and check it out. And they said they wouldn't even manage it, like a couple of properties. <laughs> They're like, look, we don't, this, we wouldn't even manage this for you. So we were able to kind of build that criteria based off of that. It just kind of, you know, even at 40,000 or more in household, meaning household income, you could still potentially run into people that, you know, well, I say, hey, do you accept section eight? But for the most part, you can start to eliminate that stuff. Sure. Now, I'm just kind of going through the list of objections from like a new investor's perspective. So identifying a market, figuring out a property type, getting your foot in the door with a broker. Now you find this deal. It's a 32 unit in Indianapolis submarket. How do you actually take it down? Because, you know, that's what you say, less than 1.4 million purchase price. That's still a good significant amount of money you've got to come right. up with. How'd you guys do that? The way we did that is we combined our savings and then every single one of us, myself, Mike, and Rich, we liquidated our 401ks. So we liquidated those in order to come up with some capital. In addition to that, we actually did take three investors. So this was a JV deal. This wasn't a syndication. Right. But we were short about $100,000 on what we think thought we needed. So we actually approached a couple people that we knew and said, hey, if you guys want to invest with us, we're looking for like maybe a minimum of 25000 and we had two people come in with 25,000 and a third come in with 50,000 and they were okay taking more of a passive role. They still like had some voting rights built into the operating agreement but they were totally cool not being in the day-to-day operation. Yeah, perhaps they don't really want to manage a property across the country, right? They're probably professionals right. and busy people and maybe like yeah. taking vacations, right? So Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about that 401k piece. This is a really interesting subject, something I've been thinking about a lot lately with the new CARES Act uh, kind of regulations and allowances mm-hmm. around that. So talk about just your mindset of you know withdrawing that 401k, why you decided to go that route. Just talk about that. Let's talk about that. So I might go on a little bit of a tangent here. So stop me if it's too long. That's all so, right. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing about the 401k. Let me first say why I don't like it, okay, to your listeners. The 401k system... For me, it's not enough, first of all. Second of all, you have to, you can't start withdrawing that on that until, like in my case, you're 59 and a half or you know, 65 in most people's cases. Okay. You're contributing to that your entire life. And you can't withdraw from that without penalty until you're in your 60s. Yeah. That alone is basically a deal breaker for me. Okay. The fact that you know, it's not going to help me achieve financial independence and retire early. Fire. It's in no way is it going to help me do that. Okay. A lot of people will argue to me, well, yeah, you can get some employer contributions or yeah, but you know, you've got some of these tax advantages. I get all of that. But here's the thing with 401ks. A lot of people don't even do the math to figure out what they need to retire with a 401k. Okay. I've studied this. There is a study that was conducted called the Trinity study. 
All right. Yes. Uh, from Trinity University, right? So they found by looking at every, if you would have retired each year starting in 1920, 1921, 19, if you would have retired all the way up until I think they did the study in the 90s, how much would you need to live off of your 401k? What percentage to where you would not outlive your money in most cases? And they found that if you lived off of 4% of your 401k income, then I think it was like a 95% chance that you wouldn't have run out of money. So they basically are just using this historical data to say, hey, look, if you just go with 4%, you're, pretty, you're looking pretty good, right? Let's, let's pause right there just real yeah. quick, Sean, just to uh, kind of lay that out what that means. So say you save up a million dollars in your retirement account, you retire, you can live off 4% or $40,000 a year. You can draw 40,000 against it without it depleting before you do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because when you are living off your 401k guys, you're selling shares whenever you're pulling money out, right? So right. you can only sell so many shares before they're all gone and you've got no money left. So it's just this nest egg is all it is. It's a pile of money that will eventually run out. And to do the math backwards, okay, let's say you've got to ask yourself, how much do I want to live off of in retirement? So let's just say for easy math, you say, I think $100,000. If I lived off $100,000 spending money each year, I'd live a pretty good retirement. So you have to multiply by 25 to do the math backwards. So that means you need 2.5 million in your retirement account if you think $100,000 is a good retirement. Now, go onto any online calculator for retirement, type in what you have in your retirement now, and then type in how much you're putting away each month, okay? And then use anywhere from 6 to 8%, 6 7%, whatever the average is for the stock market on the growth, and then do that to your 65 and see if you'll come up with 2.5 million. I'm willing to bet not a single one of your listeners will get that amount. Not to mention that's not even adjusting for inflation, right? Correct. Exactly. So a lot of people don't realize that it's not going to give you as much as you think. I think a lot of people just put some money in there thinking like, hey, I'm putting 300 bucks a month in or 400 bucks a month in or whatever. And you know, hopefully when I retire, that's going to be enough. In most cases, it's not. So now that I've covered like how all that works and why I don't like that and the fact that it's just a nest egg, I realized, and a lot, I'm sure a lot of your listeners realize, is that if you buy cash flowing real estate, it doesn't ever go away. It won't run out. It's an ATM that keeps printing you money and it never, ever stops. And matter of fact, as if the longer you hold it, the more money it's going to print for you. So the 401k eventually is going to go away. If you start today and your property's, if you got a multifamily property that's cash flowing $400 a month, when you're 65, it's going to be cash flowing a lot more than that. Yeah. So, I realize this and I, and I no longer subscribe to that traditional dogma of the 401k. It doesn't make sense to me when I know I can get better returns by properly investing in real estate, buying right, and then that cash flow will sustain my way of life and it will never go away. That's I why I did that. I love it. I completely agree with you, Sean. One revelation I had in my own personal 401k kind of journey was, you know, we're kind of raised and grow up with this blueprint to go to school, get a good education, get a good job, save for retirement, retire one day, right? That's kind of the traditional right. you know, life plan. Yeah. Now, if you're following that, you might think, hey, this 401k is this tried and true retirement vehicle. But in all reality, I think it was first implemented in like 1979 or 1980. So it's really yeah. only been around for about 40 years now. Say you were that very first kind of demographic to invest in the 401k and you were 23, 25 years old. In that time frame, and you've been investing for forty years now. Well, you're just now seeing the very first set of those people who have invested Correct. throughout the whole career, and it's not this exactly tried and true kind of vehicle. So, just something to kind of take away for the audience members. There, you know, this is not like a 
multi-century kind of investment vehicle that's been around forever. It was an idea that a lot of people relied on and depended on and bought into 100%. And you're right. And that's a good point you brought up. The first retirees that are retiring using their 401k are just now retiring. And take go look at the data on them. They're not doing so hot. I think that the average 401k balance for them is like less than $50,000 or something like that. It's really sad. And obviously, that's not going to get you much. So go take a look at those. If you're a listener and you wanted to do a little bit more research, look at what the average 401k balance is for retirees that are retiring and look at what it is across America. It's a lot harder to reach financial freedom that way. And remember, you don't get to use leverage whenever you're investing in your 401k. Real estate, you do. That's a huge factor. As an air traffic controller, fellow engineer myself, Sean, we see a lot of people still working in the workplace that are at that retirement age that aren't able to retire. I'm sure you see that in your industry like I do mine. Mm-hmm. And kind of going back to that point where you mentioned earlier in the episode, you're looking you know, at the people who are doing what you're doing and thinking, hey, do I want to be in that position 30, 40, 50 years down the line? And if the answer is no, you got to figure something else out, right? Exactly. And I think that real estate is the most powerful way to do that. There's a bunch of strategies. I personally subscribe to the multifamily strategy and, and think that that is the far superior strategy. But you also get more control over it. You know, you're completely relying when you're investing in that 401k on the markets and how the market's going to perform. And you could be nearing retirement and all of a sudden you're lose a huge portion of retirement. I also know people that were nearing retirement that had that happen to them. And remember, when you're doing your 401k calculator calculations that I had told you about earlier, you're assuming that you're going to be investing in the S&P 500 that whole time. A lot of people start transferring money to bonds or government bonds later on and towards the retirement. So you're going to have way less returns because they're worried that if that S&P 500 all of a sudden tanks towards when they're getting closer to retirement, they might go from having a million bucks to 700,000 in the blink of an eye. So also keep that in mind that you're likely not going to be in the S&P 500 that whole time. So your number would be even lower. But yeah, a lot of people that I know were nearing retirement whenever the stock market took a big hit years ago. And that really messed with them. Now, when you're talking about a 401k, there are several things you can do. You can invest in or contribute to that 401k, get any kind of employer match that you're getting. That's all fine and dandy. I'm like semi-okay with that. In fact, I've been right. doing that for several years now. Now there's a few things from there you can do. You can take a loan, pay yourself back. You can withdraw it and completely take a penalty. You can roll it over into an IRA or self-directed IRA where you've got a little bit more control and you can invest it in some asset classes that you actually like and have a little bit more option. Or you can totally just like you did, you know, like we already mentioned, withdraw it, take cash and you know, yeah. go that way. Now in today's environment, we're recording this November 2020 in this kind of hopefully soon to be post-COVID era. Now we're in the midst of this CARES Act, right? And this CARES Act allows people to do a lot more options with this 401k account until the end of this year. Uh, You and I aren't professionals on that topic, so I'm not trying to drag either of us into those waters. But Well, um, I did did utilize it. So like with the CARES Act, for example, if you want to do what I did a year ago and withdraw from your TS, I use TSP, but if you withdraw from your 401k, you take a penalty. I think it's a 10% penalty. Right. Obviously, you'll pay taxes during tax season on that. So I, I just set aside 15% for that, which covered it, um, more than covered it. But in addition to that, they only let me, with TSP, I'm pretty sure it's the same across the board, withdraw what you contributed. So they wouldn't allow me to withdraw my employer's contributions. They wouldn't allow me which, to withdraw the growth either. It was oh. just the money that I put in, they would allow me to withdraw. So that 
I still took it. And then the CARES Act came along and it actually allows you to withdraw all everything, every dime that's in there, your employer contributions, everything. And there's no penalty. You All you have to do is pay the taxes on it, just like you would have if you wouldn't have put the money in there in the first place. It, it's taxable income. So let us tax it like your regular income when tax season comes along. And that's the only hit that you're going to take with the CARES Act. And one more point, even sweeter is you get to spread that tax liability if you choose over three years under these CARES Act regulations. So that's right. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, that, that's great. That can be a bit of a mental hurdle for a lot of people, right? Just, you know, that's such ingrained traditional financial knowledge is to invest in a retirement account. Once you start trying to wrestle with that idea, I'm sure even you had some reservations about doing that. Can you just kind of talk about that mindset kind of? Yeah, I think still like my heart was pumping a little bit when I made that decision. And there were still some nerves there, even though I knew what I was doing was the right move for me. And I think it's just because from a young age, every single one of us are ingrained with that ideology. I mean, you go through, I'm sure high school, they're already talking about it. Every employer you have is talking about it. You probably grew up with your parents discussing this and everyone will look at you like you're an idiot if you you know don't no longer subscribe to that 401k. I've tried to have conversations with people at my work and they think I'm crazy. Yeah, right. <laughs> However, I'll tell you this, they're not going to think I'm crazy when all of a sudden I walk away and I quit my W2 job and they're like, wait a minute, and they're 55 years old and have been doing it for this whole time. And they're going to say, wait a minute, how can you quit so early? And I say, my real estate, it's provided me with, you know, 15 grand a month, passive cash flow, this tax advantage. See ya. For me, <laughs> early on, it came down to one question that I asked myself, Sean, and that was, what's the goal of this 401k? Is it to outlive my money or have my money outlive me? And then I started right. thinking about that. I'm like, neither option sounds good. Like, I don't want to die with, you know, a whole bunch of money in the bank that I just didn't spend because I was too frugal. Right. And I also don't want to live and, you know, be eating ramen noodles when I'm 99. And then another thing that another point on that is, is we're both into real estate now. Right. And for me, I was also looking at it as I'm definitely quitting my job. I'm not going to be working here until I'm 60 years old. Okay. That's for sure. I know that, you know, so if you're contributing to this thing and then all of a sudden you're going to quit your job in three or four years, or what are you accomplishing? Are you going to just let that money that's in the 401k, when you got 30 grand in there or something, and you're just going to let that sit there until you're 60 years old? I mean, that's not going to do anything. So I also looked at it from that perspective. Like, look, I'm quitting regardless and letting this money just sit inside a 401k for 30 years. I'll probably, heck, you know, I'll, I'll forget about it by that time because I'll, you know, be living off my real estate. So, you know, unless you love your job, okay, you have no problem working that job until you're in your 60s and you intend on contributing that entire time. Maybe you can make an argument, but you know, for me, that wasn't going to work. I think for a lot of the people, it makes sense. Like you said, there's a certain set of people out there that probably honestly aren't listening to this podcast right now that, you know, that <laughs> is the best thing they can do because yeah. they don't have an alternative, right? Sure. They don't, they're not into real estate. They're not, you know, day traders in the stock market. You know, that's just a forced savings account for them, right? So, sure. you know, it's better than nothing, but it's not the best for a lot of people. I would agree with that 100%. It's better than nothing for sure. And it's and people that are putting a lot of money in their 401k are still doing more than most of America. But I don't think it's the best option out there. What other unusual kind of perspectives do you have towards kind of the wealth generation, building financial freedom pursuit than typical people? Yeah, I think that... Well, a couple of the things that I run into a lot with that sort of traditional way of thinking is, I mean, with the nature of the investing that I'm doing is investing out of state. Even that alone is most people think you're a little crazy doing that. 
I've had, you know, family members and people say, oh, I have, you know, uh, my good buddy of mine's a real a millionaire from real estate. And he said he'd never invest anywhere outside of his own backyard where he can, you know, drive by the property. So honestly, that's kind of a concept that goes against the grain for a lot of people. Unless you're like really deep into real estate investing, uh, a lot of people would think you're crazy for that. And I think that, you know, taking on a lot of debt for real estate is going to freak people out. Yes. You know, there's two kinds of debt, really. There's your consumer debt, which is bad debt. And then you have good debt that's going to make you a lot of money. And I tell people to think about it like this. No business is going to grow exponentially without debt. All these companies, these major corporations that are growing, they don't just like live off of cash flow and just hold on to cash so they can grow. No way. If you want to grow exponentially, you need to use leverage smartly. So that's kind of how I explain it to people. And it, you know, for sure, you can get yourself in trouble with debt and leverage. But that's another like kind of traditional dogma that I try to tell people like, look, look at real estate debt in a totally different, you know, underneath a totally different microscope, in my opinion. So people see you doing what you're doing, Sean, you're making moves, you're buying multifamily across the country, you're scaling your portfolio, you've got some maybe unorthodox perspectives in your approach to wealth building and financial freedom. Now, eventually it starts to catch on and people say, okay, I really like what Sean's doing. I want to yeah, invest in with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk about that kind of phase of your career and what you're doing there. Yeah. So what will happen is, you know, once you buy like a multifamily property that's, you know, I don't know, at 32 units, that people think that's enormous. Obviously, the, uh, we know that that's not a very big portfolio. But I tell people I got 32 unit and it just blows their mind. But once, you know, we got our property like turned around, cash flowing, it's doing really well. People like to follow along. So like routinely at work and with around friends, you know, at parties, people are like, Hey man, how's that real estate going? How's that 32 unit? And I'll tell them like, Oh, it's, you know, it's cash flowing about 10 grand a month right now. You know, we're looking at refinancing and, and getting people's eyes one. get real big. People's and- eyes get really big. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How did you, you know, and then they start asking questions. And now, you know, as they listen to my podcast, especially and they hear all these success stories, now people are starting to come out and say, Hey man, like keep me in mind, like if there's any way that I could get in on one of these deals. I've got X amount of money that I've got saved up and I'd be interested in getting in. So it's slowly as you know, you prove your methods, the people around you will start to get interested. It's kind of impossible not to get interested. If you go out there and you take down a property and people see your success, they want in on the action. Now, yeah, I totally agree there. I want to kind of, uh, kind of talk about that 32 unit. You bought yeah. it, you kind of stabilized it. It sounds like you've refinanced it. So in my career, there's been a couple aha moments, right? One was that very first rent check I ever got from that first single family I bought. Like, wow, I've listened to this idea on a podcast. I got a rent check. Whoa, this thing works. Cool. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, I go buy a duplex. Wow, that's really cool. You know, then I do a refinance. And, okay, this is getting crazy. Like these things right. actually do work. Talk about this uh, kind of refinance period once you've been able to do kind of full cycle with that 32 unit. Great topic to talk about because as we talked about off air, right before I got on this podcast, guys, I was on the phone with our mortgage broker talking about our refinance options, talking about refinancing into some Fannie or Freddie debt. So for the SBL loan program. So we're getting into agency debt now. And this was one of those aha moments because, you know, following this business plan over the past year and, you know, increasing our net operating income, we knew that we were increasing the value of the property. And as we were looking at our T12 and our financials for the past year recently, we we're like, hey, you know, we could probably refinance and get like, you know, an evaluation that would allow us to return most of our capital and get some more things done. How about we go take this to Jonathan and, and have him size it up? 
And one of those aha, see, the thing about it is, is when you go to refinance, they will make your numbers look a little bit prettier than you would make them look. So he sized up the deal and I I talked to him and he said, you know what? I can get this thing to appraise for north of 2 million. Remember, we bought this last December for 1.2 million. So he said, I can get this thing to appraise for north of 2 million right now. So you're 11 months out, darn near doubled your valuation. Correct. Yeah. We're looking at getting some good debt with a couple, like three years at least of interest only payments. So we can cash a little bit more for the first couple of years. Everything about it was just an aha moment. It was one of those moments where he said, once he said, I can get this thing to appraise for north of 2 million, that was when I, my brain just went, oh my God, like this stuff really works. Because obviously I knew that it really works, but once you get something that you weren't right. expecting, I was expecting like a, anywhere from a 1.7 to maybe 2 million valuation. But once he said those words, that's when I got a huge smile on my face. And I was excited to text my partners and be like, guys, boom, we just like got north of 2 million. So that was one of those moments that just makes you feel like, man, all of that hard work and some of those rough months we just went through, it's all going to pay off. And now it's time to rinse and repeat, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going <laughs> to rinse and repeat. Trust me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Sean, you know, so many people might be listening to this podcast and thinking, wow, that sounds really cool. I mean, I've got a day job just like Sean does. I've got a little time on my hands to start learning stuff. They obviously already are by listening to this podcast and yours and et cetera. You know, what are some kind of actionable steps that you maybe could point back in your career and say, hey, you know, this really helped me maybe focus in this area? Great question. First thing that I would do if you can is latch on to a mentor, whether it's paid or free. Talk to somebody, try to provide them any value you can. Talk to people that have been in this, that are doing what you want to do and get advice from them and pick their brain. You could do this at meetups. That's one of the best places to do it. You could do it online, but I would always recommend that. The other thing I'd recommend is to continuously absorb as much content as you can because we live in the information age. You can learn so much for no money. Podcasts are a great way. There's loads of podcasts out there right now. And I would recommend instead of listening to music, just constantly listen to podcasts. Find more multifamily podcasts if you want to get into multifamily. Listen to all of them. I can't tell you how many lessons I've learned from those because you'll always get a guest that will say like, oh yeah, you know, I was able to save a whole bunch of money by just renting out a storage unit and buying all of my materials ahead of time and then just storing it in that. And that was cheaper than buying them all separately because I got such a good deal. Oh my God, that was genius. I, I would have never thought of that. And then, you know, on, the list goes on and on and on of all of these little tips and tricks that I've learned about this business just from podcasts and then obviously reading books. So I think that just self-educating continuously can get you to where you would feel comfortable pulling the trigger. Yeah. And I would just follow up on that saying, yeah, all that networking and education piece is absolutely crucial and absolutely vital, but you have to couple it with action, right? You can't just listen to podcasts and all of a sudden, you know, you own right. a 32 unit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Eventually you do have to take action because another good point to make about that is I even remember when we were getting this 32 unit, I was a little nervous. I was a little scared because you're always going to have some self doubt. But at the end of the day, you just have to go do it. Like you're going to have to take some risks because no matter how much you study and read and listen to podcasts or talk to other professionals, you won't learn everything and you're going to have to just learn from doing. You're going to have to make some mistakes. And that's just part of it. But you're going to learn way more from just jumping in and getting started. My advice would be to get it started as soon as you possibly can. Stop waiting. I love it. One last topic before we wrap up, Sean, kind of talk just briefly on the power of partnerships. You've got two other partners in your multifamily business. Some Mm -hmm. people have a little hesitation on partnering. Talk about how it's helped you grow and scale. 
I think that if you want to grow and scale, partnering is almost a must. I mean, trying to do all of this on your own, I couldn't even imagine. So for a couple of reasons. One, if you want to get into this business, it costs a lot of money. So it's obviously going to help if you could partner with other people to then combine all of your resources to be able to take down a multifamily property. Unless you just happen to have boatloads of cash burning a hole in your pocket to go buy a multifamily deal. In which case, call me. (laughs) Yeah, right. But if that's if you're like me, just get some partners and getting some a deal done is super important. So you can get some experience for the lenders, all that stuff we talked about earlier. So I would recommend that for partners for that reason. Also, because you can complement your skills. If you're kind of a more of an introverted person that's not really great, maybe at doing the networking with brokers, cold calling brokers and stuff like that, and you're a little uneasy about doing that, then partner with somebody that's really good at that. If you're not really good at the construction renovation side, like you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between laminate flooring and vinyl plank, and you have no idea, bring somebody on that has a little bit of experience doing that. Maybe they flipped houses and they can, they know how to to vet contractors and can help you with that. So I would say if you're thinking about it, complement your skill set with other people that can fill in the gaps on stuff you're not really good at. And also because for the money perspective, I mean, you need to bring in people so you can get more units. The more units you get, the quicker you're going to get to financial freedom. I love it. Sean, hey, this is an awesome conversation. We could go all day, but let's go ahead and start wrapping up. We've got a lightning round, a series of questions we fire at every one of our guests. Are you up for it? I'm down. Let's do it. Lightning away. Right. <laughs> First question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what'd you do to overcome that? Ooh, I think the biggest hurdle was the experience hurdle. And we kind of talked about that earlier. That was easily the biggest, the biggest hurdle. So to overcome that, do the same thing we did. Preempt their reservations about working with you by hammering at those weaknesses right away. If, you don't, if you've never done a deal before, show them why you can close because that's what they care about. Yeah, that's really good advice. I definitely recommend implementing that and uh, really cool ways you did that. So awesome. Sean, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Definitely. I try to do something for my business every single day. And I really do. Like Whether that's writing a blog article to post on my website, whether that's reaching out to a couple podcast guests to see if I can you know, get somebody to come on the show, whether that's trying to create some kind of new spreadsheet to track something, every, or just reading and learning more. So every day, I try to do something to get better at my business. Do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day-to-day? An online resource? Ooh. Oh, boy. There's probably a bunch of them. Obviously, bigger pockets. But when it comes to the multifamily stuff, honestly, I really love Joe Fairless's website because he has probably the most articles out of by far. So if you want to get into multifamily, go to Joe Fairless. I think it's just joefairless.com. You could just Google Joe Fairless. His book is obviously one of the best for multifamily. I've got it sitting right here. Oh, yeah. Great book. (laughs) But I think like he's one of the best online resources. I love just going and reading his blogs personally. Yeah. Even from an active or uh, passive investor side, tons of content there. Totally yeah. agree. His book, The Best Ever Apartment Syndication Book, is like the textbook for buying apartments. Yeah. If you're going to get in this business and you have to read that book, in my opinion, that's one of your textbooks that you have to read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the, yeah, for sure. Completely agree. Leads into our next question. What's a book recommendation and why? Maybe not that one, but... Oh, so how about not that one? Pitch Anything by Orrin Kalaf. Have you ever read that one? Yes. Yeah. I multiple love times. Book. Love that book because that book, for the listeners who've never heard of that book, will help you in... It's about pitching deals, right? Is what this book is about. But it's going to help you understand how people think when it comes to sales and really anything else in life. 
And if you're going to get into this business, that book is going to help you tremendously. I love that book. Completely agree. I've got it on Audible. It's also a good Audible book. You yeah. know, sometimes, you know, you've got books that are like very chart heavy and picture heavy. This isn't necessarily one of them. So yeah, totally mm-hmm. recommend that book. We'll link it in the show notes for our audience members to check it out. Sean, last question in the lightning around, if you're to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Sean? Oh man, I would tell 20-year-old Sean, go buy a, a real estate asset right now. Whether that's using your VA loan to just get a single family house to house hack or you know a small multifamily or whatever, buy something and hold on to it. Awesome, Sean. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, hey, you're no stranger to the mic. You actually host a podcast with your partners. It's the most clever name podcast knowing your background. So tell us a little bit about that. Thank you for letting me for the free plug. I appreciate it. It's called the Multifamily Takeoff Podcast. And we kind of just, since we're all three air traffic controllers, myself, Rich, and Mike, we're all air traffic controllers at the same workplace. So we wanted to kind of tie in our background a little bit to the name and the branding. And so we came up with the Multifamily Takeoff. And yeah, we release a new episode every Monday, just like this podcast. We talk about, well, we exclusively talk about multifamily. So if any of your listeners want to give us a look, just check it out. We'd appreciate it. You can also check us out on the multifamilytakeoff.com and uh, check out my blog while you're there. I've been working really hard on that. Awesome. Yeah, that's the multifamily takeoff. Awesome name just to begin with, knowing your background even cooler. You guys have had some really great guests on there with 40 plus episodes now. I think you've had Grant Cardone. Rod Cleef, a lot of heavy hitters in the industry. It's a really great podcast. So yeah, we'll definitely link that in the show notes. Thanks, man. Sean, hey, as we're wrapping up here, is there any parting piece of advice that you'd like to leave with our audience members? Oh yeah, get started. Stop dragging your feet. Stop thinking that you can't do it. Stop thinking you don't have enough money. Those are all just excuses because if you've been studying this for any length of time, you know that there's strategies to overcome all of that stuff. Stop making excuses get started in real estate investing. I love it. Sean, where's the best place people can reach out to you and learn more about what you're doing? Either go to the multifamilytakeoff.com or even our, our entity for syndications, which is pack3capital.com. That's P-A-C, the number three, capital.com. You can even email me directly. I don't mind. Sean.dmartel, or excuse me, Sean at the multifamilytakeoff.com. Use that email. Great. Awesome. That's Sean at the multifamilytakeoff.com and we'll link all those other resources in the show notes. Sean, hey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Jacob. I really appreciate it, man. This is fun. Yeah, you bet. Take care. Thanks. Bye. All right. That wraps up this week's conversation with our guest, Sean DeMartel. Hey, great and exciting content there. I really enjoyed talking with Sean. Now, some of the topics we discussed in today's show, you might find maybe a little controversial, possibly, or even at the very least, a little unorthodox. Things like saving for retirement, that's such conventional wisdom, and it goes against what we are kind of taught as society. But remember, also being wealthy is unconventional. When I find myself talking or listening about subjects like this, it reminds me of the quote by Mark Twain that says, Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. So I suggest, you know, maybe do that. Take some time and think about these things. And if you have any comments, questions, want to reach out, talk more about this, feel free to reach out to me. The best place to do that these days is on social media. You can look me up on Instagram at jsairs33 or always at www.jsairs33. 
jacobairs.com. We'll also link Sean's social media and contact information in the website, along with all the resources we mentioned in today's show. Well, hey, until next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively. 